roll and I'll just feel something. Welcome to Rackhouse Ramblings Podcast. I'm Jeff, your host. Here I like to talk about bourbon and anything related to it. Sometimes I talk about life experiences. Sometimes I talk about adventures I've had. Sometimes I just talk about things I'm interested in. But you know what? Every time I talk from the heart. I'm a firefighter. I'm a craftsman. I'm an avid outdoors person, and I'm a lover of all things handcrafted. Thanks for taking time to listen. I'll do my best to make it worth your while. Rackhouse Ramblings is on the air. Welcome, welcome. This is episode 53 of Rackhouse Ramblings. And before we get started, I just remembered something. This is I was calling this the third season after episode 50. <laughs> so here we are. I'm going to call it the, the third episode. Let me take that back. Episode 53. It's a, We're in the third season. Let's call it that way. Officially, I declare it. So um, first things first. Let's see what we got. Uh, I'm going to spotlight a bourbon. Um, for the last few weeks, I have been listening to a podcast called uh, Tales from the Hill. And it is a podcast put out by Heaven Hill Distilleries. And I really like it. They're um, kind of short podcasts, 30 minutes, 20 minutes, 40 minutes, some of them. And they feature different people within the company that do different things from marketing to tasting to whatever. And um, each episode, uh, they do special episodes also on their different products. So there's an Evan Williams, Elijah Craig, Pikesville Rye, Larceny, Old Fitzgerald, um, things like that, Bowden and Bond, Henry McKenna. Burnheim Weeded Bourbon and Rittenhouse Rye. So um, one of the episodes talked about Larceny Bourbon. So guess what I'm going to spotlight? Larceny, that's right. Um, like all my spotlights, I start with the webpage. It's called HeavenHillDistillery.com. So here's we, here we go. We, I went to their website, and it says, Larceny Kentucky Straight Bourbon has its origins in the history of John E. Fitzgerald and the old Fitzgerald brand. Our master distillers select a limited number of barrels from specific floor locations in the rickhouse for Larceny's six-year-old taste profile, continuing the tradition of Old Fitzgerald using wheat in place of rye as a secondary grain. So, of course, the first grain is, is uh, corn. So, in the, when at Larceny, their second grain is uh, wheat. So, here we go. Larceny uses more wheat than any of its competitors for a softer, rounder character. Larceny is one among a family of our one-of-a-kind weeded bourbons. So Heaven Hill also has uh, Larceny Small Batch, Larceny Barrel Proof, and Old Fitzgerald Bottled in Bond. And they're all considered weeded bourbons. So wheat is the number two uh, ingredient after corn. So I also found on the internet at another website called GentlemanRanters.com um, a little write-up on John E. Fitzgerald, the man, the myth, the legend. When it comes to the stories behind bourbon brands, some are grounded in fact, while others are pure fantasy. <laughs> so they make shit up. John E. Fitzgerald, a rare character who has enjoyed a tall tale past and a factual historical background as the basis for two separate brands. Hmm. Today, Larceny, known as smooth, as a smooth and tasty bourbon that can be equally enjoyed with the whiskey newcomer, the average bourbon drinker, and the bourbon aficionado. And it's reasonably priced it means it graces the shelves of many a well-respected bourbon collection. In this post, we'll play the role of bourbon historian as well as give insight into the market to help you understand why the stellar weeder has become so popular in the bourbon community. So they go on to talk about some of the history. And it's, uh, here we go, under history. Sometimes it's hard to separate fact from fiction. In the case of John E. Fitzgerald, at least part of it, 
Part of that is intentional. Over the centuries, the truth behind the old Fitz brand was purposely blurred. Let's start with Solomon Charles Herbst, a wine and spirits merchant and marketing wonk based in Milwaukee. When he launched the old Fitzgerald brand in the 1870s, he cast a tall tale about a distiller named John E. Fitzgerald who built a distillery with his bare hands. The bourbon was only sold to high-end rail lines, private clubs, excuse me, and steamships, and an air of exclusivity and mysticism followed by the old Fitzgerald name. The backstory followed the brand through the years. During Prohibition, Old Fitzgerald was one of the brands licensed to sell medicinal alcohol by prescription. So remember that during Prohibition, uh, you were only allowed to have alcohol if you had a prescription from your doctor for it. So this is one that you could get a prescription for. It goes on to say, after repeal, it was purchased by Julian P. Pappy Van Winkle. And I'm sure you've all heard of Pappy Van Winkle. It was moved to the Stitzel Weller Distillery, where Van Winkle added the whisper of wheat to the mash bill. But the real John Fitzgerald was a bonded U.S. Treasury agent, known then as a government man. You see, back then, a bonded warehouse at each distillery were required to have a two-key locking mechanism to secure the rickhouses. One key was kept by the bonding agent, and the other by the managers of the distillery. That way, employees were prevented from entering the warehouses and adulterating or tampering with or stealing any of the liquid inside the barrels. But who watches the watchmen? Well, Fitzgerald acquired a second key from distillery staff to gain access to the warehouse at night. Then using a whiskey thief, he allegedly stole samples of the maturing whiskey from barrels, taking pours of the best tasting barrels home with him. When the distillery production staff later dumped the lighter barrels, they called them Fitzgerald barrels, noting their exquisite taste. Today, Old Fitzgerald is produced by Heaven Hill Brands. When Heaven Hill wanted to offer a premium brand extension to the value segment of Old Fitzgerald offering, they tapped into this factual history. So in 2012, Larceny Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey was launched as an homage to John E. Fitzgerald, complete with key iconography on the label as a nod to his days as a bonding agent. So there you go. Some history on uh, how the Larceny brand came and John E. Fitzgerald and all that sort of thing. Um, let's talk about the mash bill. 51% corn. Larceny is a weeded bourbon, which means along with malted barley, wheat rounds out the secondary grains and takes the place of spicy rye. The use of wheat offers a smoother, more rounded character. Hmm. 68% corn, 20% wheat, and 12% malted barley. Very, very interesting. Um, it says weeded bourbon is all the rage these days. On the brand website, Larceny plays to that trend. The brand claims to have 5% more wheat than any other weeded bourbons, but they do not clarify which weeded bourbons. Hmm. For comparison, Maker's Mark has 16%. Van Winkle and Weller both have 17, Rebel Yell contains 20, and Redemption Weeded has a whopping 45%. Huh. So let's see what else they say here. Larceny is distilled at Heaven Hill, Burnheim Distillery in Louisville, the largest whiskey-making distillery in Kentucky, and second only to Jack Daniels in Tennessee. Heaven Hill's distillery is outfitted with modern whiskey-making equipment, including three massive 60-inch stills. So it is a 92 proof, has tasting notes, uh, written here, let's see, it says color is bright new copper. The aroma is fresh bread and toffee with notes of butterscotch. And the taste is a buttery caramel and honey with a rich mouth feel. <laughs> Finish is long, gently sweet, and savory. While it certainly isn't the only brand to use wheat instead of rye in its mash bill, which creates a smoother, rounder character, Larceny uses more than uh, most. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. Um, inspired by a thief, Larceny gets his name from John Fitzgerald. Yep, we read that part. And here we go. 
As the story goes, Fitzgerald initially built a Kentucky distillery in 1870s, became a legend in the whiskey world. The brand Old Fitz was registered in 1880. Okay, Old Fitz was later sold. Hmm. If you, oh, 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 there you go. If you want to uh, listen to an interesting podcast, for sure, check out Tales from the Hill. Um, like I said, I've been binge uh, listening to it, and I kind of like it. So let's see what we got here. So right in front of me, I have a bottle of Larceny. It's a Larceny Small Batch, 92 proof. Um, pretty cool bottle. It says Small Batch, 92, weeded bourbon mash bill. Has that John Fitzgerald story on the back. John Fitzgerald's weakness was a fine bourbon as a treasury agent, who at the time was the only person legally allowed to carry keys to the Rick houses. He gave in temptation, freely taking from the best barrels, those that contained weeded bourbon. Bourbon made with wheat instead of traditional wine. These eventually became known around the distillery as Fitzgerald barrels. Now, Larceny Bourbon honors both the superb taste of this lawless treasury agent and the legacy of the old Fitzgerald brand. So here we go. I want to say, I think I picked this up at Kroger. If I remember right, it's been a while. I'd plan on doing this podcast a few months ago, so this bottle has been sitting in the bourbon room for a few months now. So we'll open it up. We'll check it out. Certainly has, they called it a new copper um, color, and I would say that's not, well, pretty darn close. Like if you had a brand new copper pipe that you're going to sweat, that's what it kind of looks like. Let's see what we have. That's not a sound effect. That is me pouring right near the mic. Let's see what we have. Mmm. Oh, definitely, like, definitely, uh, oh, I don't want to say weedy taste, but uh, it reminds me of, like, a wheat bread um, finish. Uh, very smooth. Let me try another sip. Hmm. Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. That would be something to definitely add to your collection. Um, I never really considered a weeded bourbon being anything special, but it's uh, if you wanted to do like taste tests with other bourbons, this is kind of a good one to throw in there. No burn going down. Has a nice warm finish, smooth finish, and uh, really, a really good smell to it. <laughs> okay, so there you have it. Larceny Bourbon from Heaven Hill Distilleries. Get you guys some. It's pretty good. Uh, stay right there. We got another segment coming up. Uh, Rackhouse Ramblings. We'll be right back. Okay, Rackhouse Ramblings is back. Once again, this is episode 53. I'm back after my long, long, long break. <laughs> uh, thank you guys so much uh, for uh, asking about the podcast, kind of motivating me to get it back going, and um, I really appreciate it. Like I said, uh, Sarah, who else was out there? Uh, Rick and Chris and, uh, boy, oh, boy, Joe and Bill and... Whew, so many people asked about the podcast. I really, really, I'm sure, I know I'm leaving out names. I apologize, but I want to thank all you guys for uh, for uh, being listeners and being loyal and all that sort of thing. So anyway, here we go. Next segment while I'm sipping on some uh, Heaven Hill Distillery's uh, weeded bourbon called Larceny. 
I highly uh, recommend you get it. It's pretty good. Uh, very reasonably priced. I got this one at Kroger. I want to say it was 28 or 30 bucks, something like that. I don't remember off the top of my head. But anyway, here we go. Um, so originally this script that I'm working on was going to come out back in, oh boy, oh boy, February. So the, the dates are a little bit off. But back then, uh, the new season of Growing Belushi was back on, season two. If uh, I really like Jim Belushi, and um, the whole show revolves around his uh, marijuana and the marijuana grow industry. Um, it's on the Discovery Channel. Uh, on demand check it out it's pretty cool pretty cool really interesting few things i didn't know but i kind of like the humor that goes along with it and before i forget back in january i spent uh the weekend in a place called stone creek ohio with my friends brad and julie um stone creek is in the southeast part of the state and it did not make did not remind me of ohio at all i had a lot of fun there it was uh i my buddy uh, brad and julie uh, they invited me down for the uh, late muzzleloader season for deer in Ohio. And they live in Amish farm country. Um, uh, it, it, like I said, it's not the Ohio you're used to seeing. So um, their property and the surrounding area is very hilly. These deep, small valleys with farms kind of rolling in the landscape. Uh, remind me of waves of rolling landscape. And the bottoms of the valleys had these tall hardwood trees. They line the sides of these little creeks in the bottom of the valleys. And typically... Um, when you're driving through Ohio, you know, as soon as we cross the border here from Michigan into uh, Toledo, you don't think of it being as like hilly. Once you get through Toledo, it's all flat. Like as far as you can see, um, usually if I'm driving south on 75 to Kentucky, it's a beautiful area, but it's all very, very flat. So I uh, drove down there on a Friday, got Stone Creek, took me through Amish country, and when you think of Amish country, you think of like furniture and all that sort of thing. But, you know, there were horse-drawn carriages. There was like laundry hanging on the clothesline and all that. And this was like in the 30s. It was in January. And every house had laundry hanging outside. And so let's talk about the uh, the horse-drawn carriages were freaking everywhere. Um, and if you don't drive around these things a lot, it's pretty scary. <laughs> it really was. Because almost every time I came around a corner, there would be someone there in one of these horse-drawn carriages. I swear I almost hit five or six of them. And so like all the roads to get to his, uh, to Brad and Julie's place are just like two-lane blacktop roads. And they're all curvy and winding through the hills and out. lots of blind corners. And next thing you know, it's like, oh shit, uh, there's like a carriage in the way. Then there was, oh, the other thing, um, e-bikes. So, yes, they're Amish with e-bikes. They have these electric pedal bikes. And, of course, when I was there, it was in winter in January, and then they had these big warm mittens on, and they had the goggles and, this like, a ski mask-looking thing with uh, their face covered up. And um, they remind me of, like, the downhill ski racers, <laughs> but they were on e-bikes. So... Um, they had, uh, like, the handlebar warmers and all that sort of thing, like you'd see on snowmobiles. So that was kind of funny. There, and then their bikes, every single bike had, uh, like, saddlebags on it, like metal saddle baskets or something like that. And I even saw a few of them were pulling, like, carts with little kids in the back, like little toddler carts uh, in the dead of freaking winter. It looked, it looked so, so cold. But anyway, it was quite an experience for me. And then I noticed the other thing, too, like, because it's all blacktop, all the blacktop had these two little skinny ruts in it from where the Amish carriages would uh, 
rut like would uh, like go down the road. So like here you have like bigger ruts for big rigs that kind of dent the like make ruts in the blacktop. Down there, their ruts are really small for like carriage wheels. And then in between, so there's like the, the two small ruts, one the one left, one the right. In the middle was a brown stripe for horse shit. So every blacktop had like a brown stripe running down through the middle. I never would have never imagined on I me. Mean, now, I had no idea it was like that. So anyway, I get to Brad and Julie's a little bit after dark, and um, the coolest thing, they have the coolest house. It's a converted pole barn. And they call, I looked this up, it's called a barn dominium. And it's really, picture this, picture a pole barn, um, like 40 by 60 or 70 or whatever. Theirs was 40 by 60, I'm kind of estimating. And when you open a, a normal garage door, you see like two cars parked in, right? And it has room for all their garage and everything. But then there's this tall dividing wall that separates... It goes from floor to ceiling, like 20 feet up, and it separates the garage space from the living space. And as soon as you open the garage door, the whole place is warm. Um, I mean, like really warm, like barefoot warm. The floor, the cement, has the radiant heat in the cement. So as soon as you pull in, it, it's, it blew me. It's like you could take your shoes and socks off right there in the garage floor. So... Um, you walk in, you open the the barn dominium, and then you uh, open a door, and you walk right into the living space, like walking right into the living room. It was beautiful, beautiful uh, place. You would never know it was a pole barn. The ceilings are really tall. The kitchen was big and open, and it would kind of think of like a warehouse space that was made to be warm and cozy. And the cement floor, it was polished and uh, shiny, so it didn't even look like a cement floor. And... Um, so, of course, Julie's walking around barefoot. I, I love the whole idea of the way it was heated. So think of it, having a heated garage to mess around with and walk through the door and you're in your kitchen. I, I, I guess I might call it my dream house, right? <laughs> so I go right from the garage into the kitchen. So anyway, I'm getting off track. But we spent the evening. We were sipping bourbon. We were talking. Um, slept in the next morning. Brad explained that in his area, um, it's better for evening hunting. So we had the morning to uh, enjoy some breakfast. Then we took... Um, a ride into the town. Their closest town is called Charm, like C-H-A-R-M. And really small, just a little in intersection and a handful of stores. Um, the biggest store was my favorite. It's called Kaim Lumber. The biggest lumber yard I have ever seen. The showroom was incredible. I mean, like, incredible, incredible. It blew away anything you'd see at Home Depot. It reminded me of a Cabela store with, like, the real high ceilings and the atrium and all that. But it was all for building products like there's one areas for electrical one areas for doors one areas for windows and so many tools holy shit they had tools every band you could think of um anything for woodworking even like a whole bunch of festool if you're into work woodworking you know festool is the expensive stuff this place had a whole showroom area full of festool stuff um kime lumber had uh like everything i could think of it was i could have probably easily spent a whole day there but it was crazy busy i don't know why um, it reminded me like of a, a Cabela's on a Saturday, crazy busy, a lot of lines. So really just uh, walked around there for just a short time and we ended up uh, uh, leaving. I'll go back there one day just to, to spend more time and not go on a Saturday, that's for sure. So, and so as we're outside, everywhere you look, there's a row of, uh, of Amish, uh, what do you call it, the carriages with horses parked outside. And then we drove around the back of the place and there were these Econoline Ford vans, like little miniature buses. And Brad was explaining to me, these buses are for the employees to get to and from work. So the lumber yard picks up their people, takes them to and from work at the beginning, end of the day and in between, I suppose. And I never heard of such a thing, but that's how you have to get your uh, employees down there, I guess. So anyway, um, 
that evening, Brad and I, we went out and sat in a uh, ground blind. And Julie sat in an elevated blind over near the barn dominium. But uh, the blind that uh, Brad and I were sitting in, it was on a hillside um, behind his mother's house. And her property is right across the road from his. And um, it was kind of cool. We, we sat in this spot, kind of overlooked an open meadow. And the meadow wasn't flat. It kind of went down away from us. And um, as we're sitting there, uh, if you look out the window of the blind on the left is a thicket, maybe five or six feet away. And so you like sweep your eyes around and the next, like if I'm going from left to right, there's the, uh, on the left is a thicket. And then I'm, I'm swinging uh, towards the right. And the next thing you see is like some tall trees. And then it kind of rolls down from there to a creek. And you keep going to the right and there's more hardwoods. So we had a big open space in front of us to shoot from. And his mom's house sat behind us, probably 100 yards back uh, behind us. It was really good, good place to, to spot uh, in the glass and everything. And then if we looked straight out to maybe our 10 o'clock, you could see uh, some hardwoods. And then if you look through the hardwoods, the ground rolled back up into like a hillside. So it was, it was pretty cool. Um, with all the leaves down, you could see like anything walking around there. Um, what do I got else do I got here? My, oh, so around four o'clock, we saw like four deer. They're crossing across the hillside, kind of hiding in the thickets. And it was too far away for a muzzleloader shot. Um, but always seeing, seeing deer is always cool. Around five o'clock, Brad tells me, he goes, don't move, don't move. Uh, <laughs> it was really difficult for me. Now, if you, anyone knows me, you're going to know I have a hard time not moving. If he says, don't move and don't look, I'm the guy that will move and I will look. So anyway, so I sat there and like I couldn't look. And then Brad says, look, hurry. And uh, so I look over to the left where he told me, and there was four deer kind of peeking their head out of the thicket, and they were to our left. And so the wind was perfect. They couldn't smell us. The wind was to our face. So they turned away from us and started walking towards hardwoods. And Brad is kind of narrating it for me because this happens uh, just about every evening. And uh, so they walk, like, out of the meadow, away from us, into the woods, and Brad was explaining to me, they're gonna go through the meadow, they're gonna go down, like disappear where we can't see them, and then they're gonna swing around to the right and come back out into our uh, shooting lane. Sure enough, it was like his little movie that he was directing, right, of, of the deer. And um, they did exactly what he said they would. So um, he had like this spot picked out for the deer where they were gonna come up. And it's like kind of at the base of a tree as a handful of corn out there just to get them to put their heads down. And Brad kind of, uh, he's explaining to me, he goes, when they come out, look for the biggest doe. And sure enough, there she was and um, put the uh, crosshairs on her and boom. And uh, a nice clean shot. She just went probably like 40 or 50 yards to the right and uh, watched her fall. And she was sitting on the side of the creek about halfway up the hill. And um, uh, he was explaining to me that they all want, they, they uh, are trying to do some herd management and um, harvest does. So that's what we were there for. And then a little bit later, we also heard Julie get a shot. And so he was pretty sure she harvested a doe. So um, as the sun went down, you know, we uh, went back to the to their barn dominium, picked up the four-wheelers, and uh, went and uh, picked up uh, first Julie's deer and dragged that one down. And then we went and got my deer and dragged that one down and uh, uh, field dressed them and all that sort of thing. It was pretty cool. It was really cool. Julie's doe was definitely bigger. We sent when uh, we ended up spent the evening like kind of telling deer hunting stories, sipped on bourbon again. It was pretty, it was really pretty cool. Really pretty cool. Sunday morning we got up, had another big breakfast, um, decided to butcher up the, the deer 
and uh, we quartered them up, butchered into smaller cuts. And the nice thing was we were in their heated garage. Um, that floor radiates so much heat. It was so, so nice. And uh, what else do I got here to tell you guys? Um, I guess that was about it. So that was kind of my visit to, uh, to Ohio. It was really cool. Definitely go back there. Uh, it, it, was it was definitely not the Ohio that I am used to. I'll go back next year for, uh, for a bow season and harvest one with Brad and Julie again. So there you have it. Uh, Charm, Ohio. Stone Creek, Ohio. Um, yeah, that's about it. we got another segment coming up. So here we go. Uh, Rackhouse Rambling is going to sip on some Larceny Heaven Hill Distillery's bourbon. And we'll be right back. Stay right there. All right, I'm back. Rackhouse Ramblings, episode number 53. And one of the things, you, know, you guys know I love talking about Oak Island, but I'm going to kind of uh, shift away from that for a minute here. And I'm going to talk about another show I've been watching. It is called Beyond Oak Island um, by the same guys from Oak Island, Lagina Brothers. But um, this time they are focusing on other treasure stories. The episode I watched, um, they talked about a paddle steamer ship called the Arabia. And this was really cool. Um, check it out on demand, Beyond Oak Island. And what this was, this was a fully loaded steamboat traveling on the Missouri River near Kansas City. And the boat hit a snag and sank. And this was uh, September 5th of 1856. Uh, it was found and excavated in a farm field in 1988. That's right. You heard me right. It sank in a river, but they found it in a farm field. So you can... It's great. This boat, it, they turned it into a museum and everything in Kansas City. I got to check it out. But let's back up. So they found it in a, in a, a cornfield. So when the boat sank, um, over time, the river changed its course. And now, uh, where, the river, where the river used to be, it's dry land. And it's, it's, I guess this happens quite a bit because the Missouri, Missouri is such a big river. And uh, it moves a lot of sediment and things like that. That there's a number of uh, steamships like that. So... Do this. Go to Wikipedia, look up Arabia the Steamboat, and you'll see what I'm talking about. It is really, really cool. Um, the cool thing is all the contents that were on this steamship went down with the steamship, and this uh, guy and his company excavated the whole thing out of, out of a cornfield, and all the contents are on display at this museum. Uh, it's got the Arabia. It's uh, near Kansas City. So, like, um, think about this. On the steamship, they were carrying upriver, I believe it was, uh, all the supplies that people needed for settling the West, from things like shoes to clothes to uh, everyday hardware items and all that. And they brought every single one of those out of the ground and put it on display in uh, uh, Kansas City. It's called the Arabia Steamboat Museum. So I went to Wikipedia uh, Let's see what I got here from Wikipedia. The Arabia was built in 1853 near Brownsville, Pennsylvania. Its paddle wheels were 28 feet across, and its steam boilers consumed approximately 30 cords of wood per day. Holy smokes. It averaged 5 miles an hour going upstream. It traveled the Ohio and the Mississippi Rivers before it was bought by Captain John Shaw, who operated on the Missouri. Its first trip was to carry 109 soldiers from Fort Leavenworth to Fort Pierre, which was located upriver in South Dakota. It then traveled up the Yellowstone River, adding 700 miles to the trip, and all the trip took nearly three months to complete. 
1856 it was sold and made 14 trips up and down the Missouri during their ownership. In March it collided with an obstacle, either a rock or a sandbar, nearly sinking with a damaged rudder. The repairs were made in nearby Portland. A few weeks later it blew a cylinder head and had to be repaired again. In March of 1856 it was stopped and searched by pro-slavery border ruffians near Lexington, Missouri. According to the newspaper accounts, a Pennsylvania abolitionist aboard dropped a letter, which was discovered and handed over to Captain Shaw. The letter described guns and cannons en route to the slavery-free Kansas Territory. The weapons were discovered in boxes labeled carpenter's tools and confiscated. Pretty cool. In September, the Arabia, September, September 1856, the Arabia set out for a routine trip. At Quindaro Bend, near the town of Parkville, it hit a submerged sycamore tree snag. The snag ripped open the hull, which rapidly filled with water. The upper decks stayed above water, and the only casualty was a mule that was tied to the sawmill equipment and overlooked. The boat sank so rapidly in the mud that by the next morning, only the smokestacks and pilot house remained visible. Within a few days, these traces were swept away. Numerous salvage attempts failed, and eventually the Ravia was completely covered by water. Over time, the river shifted a half mile to the east. So think about that. A whole river um, moves a half a mile to the east. The site of the sinking is in a cornfield near present-day Kansas City canvas. Cool. And then it says, um, they go on to say about the excavation uh, here we go, 1987, Bob Hawley and his sons set out to find it. They used old maps and a proton magnetometer to figure out the probable location. And they found it under 45 feet of silt and topsoil. The farmer, the owner of the farm gave permission with the condition they'd be completed before spring planting, and they did it. Wow. A 100-ton crane was brought in. 20 irrigation pumps were installed. Wow, 65 foot deep wells. Very, very interesting. So there you go. The Arabia. Check it out. It was on Beyond Oak Island. I thought it was really, really cool. Something pretty neat. So anyway, there you go. Uh, I think that's, let me see my next segment. Stay right there. Rackhouse Ramblings. We'll be right back. Okay, episode 53 is back. We're going to wrap it up for this week. Uh, thank you guys again so very much for listening. Uh, we're going to have some new stuff in a few more days, maybe a week. We'll see. I'll try and do something a little bit quicker. I do have some new bottles of bourbon, some Knob Creek stuff to uh, sample. Thank you to Dylan for uh, getting me a bottle of that one. And... Uh, so I, got a, I got a bunch of gift bottles in there anyway. And we got some guests coming down the pipe uh, in the near future. So uh, Rackhouse Ramblings episode 53 is concluded. You guys have a great day. Remember, uh, don't drink and drive. If you do drink, drink responsibly and drink good bourbon. All right, we'll see you guys next time. Bye. It's the end of the world.